Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this, the fifth of the uh, summer lectures in our Rare Book School summer series. Uh, this lecture is part of the NEH-sponsored Global Book Histories Initiative, and we're very grateful to the National Endowment for the Humanities um, for helping to sponsor uh, this lecture and to bring a very distinguished scholar into town, um, but also to uh, those who helped with the one-to-one -one match with our NEH fundraising. Um, we were able to uh, raise $100,000 and have that be matched by the National Endowment for the Humanities to support this Global Book Histories initiative to expand our own course offerings at Rare Book School, both in Charlottesville and in our satellite courses, and to bring in um, scholars of great international reputation who are working on um, more global subjects, as is our speaker tonight, Professor Julie Nelson Davis, who is Professor of the History of Art at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches the arts of East Asia from 1600 to the present with a focus on early modern Japan. Professor Davis is one of the foremost experts on ukiyo, the pictures of the floating world. And she's published extensively on the topic, including two books, uh, Utamaro and the Spectacle of Beauty in 2007, and Partners in Print, Artistic Collaboration in the Ukiyo Market in 2015. Professor Davis is the director of the newly formed Penn Forum on Japan, and in 2016-17, she was a senior research fellow at the Freer Gallery of Art and the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery at the Smithsonian, which is a very big deal, um, where she was the guest curator of Inventing Utamaro, a Japanese masterpiece reconsidered. She has a reputation at Penn for being an inspiring teacher who, unlike so many professors at um, R1 institutions, is deeply dedicated to the welfare and nurturing of her students. And one of the reasons why she's here tonight is because her students have so much respect and love for her. Um, and in fact, one of our one of our distinguished Mellon fellows uh, was one of her proteges who has uh, done exceptionally well for herself under Professor Davis's uh, kind and learned tutelage. So please join me in welcoming Professor Julie Nelson Davis. Wow, thank you so much, Michael. I really uh, don't think it's fair of you to try to make me cry right before I start my lecture, though. Um, but it is true that I um, am been fortunate to have some exceptional students, and I take that very um, seriously. It's a kind of sacred trust, I think, to have good students and to have the opportunity to train the next generation. Okay, um, tonight I'm very, very grateful to be here. I want to thank a lot of people. Um, I'm not going to start naming you because then I'll forget somebody, but thank you so much to everyone here for inviting me. And if David Whitesell is in the audience, thank you so much for um, being 
um, my first uh, wonderful boss. We can talk about that later. Okay, so this evening I want to take a very close look at this book, The Annual Events of the Azure Towers Illustrated, Deseiro Eho Nenju Gyoji, and see what happens when we put it back into period context. This book is now considered one of the most famous works by one of Japanese art's, art's most famous artists, Kitagawa Utamaro, and it has often been hailed as one of his final masterpieces. Uh, with a text by best-selling writer Jipensha Iku, this book has also been appreciated for its insider notes to the licensed sex trade. It is also hailed as one of the most beautiful books uh, in the genre of ukiyo-e, the pictures of a floating world, and has long been appreciated for its fine printing, gorgeous calligraphy, and subtle images. And as you can see, it's been issued in two uh, versions, a monochrome version and a full-color version, which I will speak about in a little bit later. And it's one of those books that collectors seek out as a must-have item, and it has been reprinted numerous times in reproductive woodblock technology, in facsimile, and in glossy modern books. Now, part of its fame rests on the association that's been made between the artist and the subject matter, between Uchamaro and the subject of the licensed pleasure district in Edo, and that's a place that's been renamed as Tokyo in the modern era. The book has often been read as transparently representative of Uchamaro's own experience, as though it were documentary in intent. But that is too simple an interpretation, in my opinion, especially as there is no evidence of his having drawn the quarter from life. Few documents remain to tell us about Uchamaro's life. However, by looking at his body of work over his career, we can assert that he had, by the mid-1790s, become one of the genre's best-selling designers of single-sheet prints, and he held that position for at least a decade. By the time this book was published in 1804, Uchamaro had established his own atelier with a lineage of students. He was so successful that he was being imitated by his peers, ripped off even, or at least he said he was. And this fact that he's being imitated also demonstrates his place in the field, right? Um, there's nothing better than imitation to demonstrate that you're making some money. He designed a set of prints that asserted his claim to being the best of the period, and this is one from that group. The title says that it is uh, woven in Uchamaro's style, demonstrating how much his name had become a kind of brand, and included a statement written on the hand scroll being issued in the manner of a kind of formal document. I've translated it as follows. Now, Azuma brocade prints, meaning uh, beautiful full-color prints from the East. Now, Azuma brocade prints are a famous product of Edo. Recently, minor painters have sprung forth in this district just like ants. <laughs> Relying on the luster of red and blue, drawing on clumsy forms, it is deplorable that such shameful things make their way even as far as other provinces. Thus do I draw the true form of the picture of a beautiful figure and bestow it upon these unworthies. Now at the same time that this is a complaint, it is of course a promotion of his own brand. We can also see that his publisher, um, Suruya, has directed the carvers and printers to render it with this with skill. Uh, notice, for example, the treatment of white on the white on white on her collar, on the fine uh, lines of her hair and the double printing of color in her robes. A uh, point. You can see this collar. You can see the other things. Okay. 
Okay, so Suruma uh, must have been banking on the fact that such a statement from the star artist on a print such as this, whether or not this was in fact warranted, would turn a profit. Ujimoto's collaborator for the book was one of the best-selling comic novelists of his day. In 1802, Iku, the author, issued the first part of what would become his serialized masterwork, footing it along the Tokaido, a project that would run through 1822. This book features two of the greatest idiots in Japanese literature, <laughs> Yaji and Kita, as they travel down the great seacoast road between Edo and Kyoto. It has remained a comic classic and has been made into a number of movies, with the most recent film version, version dating to 2007. Iku also wrote one of the funniest books about how to make books, told from the perspective of a harried publisher that cannot get good value from his writer, carvers, printers, and others. Iku opened that book with these remarks. Here he comments on the profits realized by their publishers in a tone that returns our attention to the author himself. Doing business provides a fertile bed of ideas for a book. No matter how much you write, you can never run out. The grimy jokes keep on coming forth like grains of sand on the beach, and the scratchy gags just won't quit. Carving away into a money tree, writers just do what they're good at and wait for the winds of fortune to blow some cash profit into their direction through some little traps they've dug, their plot devices lining the inside of their publisher's cash box with the golden hue of yellow rose kibyoshi books. I thus take up my brush in a wee bit of celebration. <laughs> That's good, huh? <clears throat> Both Iku and Uchimaru achieved renown in popular print culture of their time, so much so that they each made tongue-in-cheek self-portraits. On the left we see Iku. He's sitting on the left side of this, and this is part of this funny book about how to make books. And what's happening here is that his publisher and the publisher's wife have created a special um, uh, potion that includes sake, horse dung, and other kinds of things, of course, that you would want to drink to offer him some inspiration. The point here is that it was worth it for him to present himself as an author at the front of this book, and he did this on numerous occasions. Ujimaro did the same kind of thing, and this is a picture uh, uh, from a famous series that Ujimaro did in 1794-95, where Ujimaro is basically put into the role of the villain of this famous uh, uh, vendetta, and the courtesans have become the warriors seeking him out. And on his robe it reads Uta and Maro. So we know that this is meant to be Uta Maro. Of course he looks like a handsome devil, doesn't he? <laughs> and on the back here of this pillar it says, um, um, Ojite mi, ni, I'm not going to say it in Japanese because I'm nervous. Okay, it says, uh, by, re, by request, Uta Maro draws his own ravishing features. <laughs> Okay, so these were producers with well-developed artistic personae achieved through close collaboration with influential publishers. What we need to remember throughout this discussion is that while Iku and Uchamaro produced works that were bestsellers, as their comments suggest, they were not typically the agents of production. Rather, their publishers both paid for all the work and called the shots. They commissioned the talent, the writers and illustrators. They hired the block covers, carvers and printers paid for all the materials, bound the books in their shops, and sold the final products from those same shops. They also worked with book distributors and book lenders to get the books out to readers. Publishers also retained their capital investment. As the block holders, they owned what was in effect the rights to the contents, and they could resell or reprint at any time. 
Publishers often worked on speculation, but at other moments they worked on commission for poetry groups, fan clubs, and the like. And although we know very little about the publisher for this project, from the material quality and other details about the work, we can speculate that he may have been working as a contractor for the patrons that were likely stakeholders in the subject of the book. That is to say, this book may have been commissioned by or subvented by the brothel owners in the Pleasure Quarter. Selecting these two popular talents, Uchamaro and Iku, was a smart move for this project. But what no one knew when this book came out at the new year of 1804 is that Uchamaro and Iku, along with a number of other artists and publishers, would by midsummer become notorious for another body of work. These printed images that you see here lampooning the warlord of the 17th century, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. These materials violated censorship regulations that prohibited the subject of history appearing in floating world commercial materials. Both Iku and Uchamaro were prosecuted, found guilty, and put under house arrest in manacles for their crimes. But that event is yet in the future. Turning back to their collaboration, while this book is well known in Japanese studies, especially in my field of ukiyo-e, it has yet to be studied closely or have its text translated into English, which was part of my summer project, but something else has now, of course, gotten in the way. But perhaps even if you have never seen this book in full, you may have seen this picture. It is, I would argue, one of the most reproduced pictures of an artist at work in Japanese art history. Paging through modern books on ukiyo-e and utamaro, this picture is frequently asserted to be a self-portrait. Aligning this work with the illustrator himself elevates Uchimaru to the rank of painter, granting him greater stature than that of a print designer in the period. And since it shows the painter in a brothel watched by the courtesans, it has also often been used to prove Uchimaru's familiarity with that quarter and thus to assert the veracity of his pictures. Its fame has become such that Iku's contributions to this book have been, I would argue, elided. French critic and collector Edmond de Goncourt was the first to publish this interpretation in his 1891 biography, Utamaro le peintre des maisons vertes, Utamaro the painter of the greenhouses. And you can imagine here this idea of um, maison verte, which has a certain meaning in French, of course, when it's translated to greenhouses in English causes all kinds of trouble. <laughs> This was the first monograph on any Japanese artist in any language. Goncourt did not read or speak Japanese and had few resources at hand. He often relied upon information he received from Paris-based dealer Hayashi Tadamasa. And Hayashi, of course, was looking to sell more art, so he told Goncourt a lot of things that we wonder about today. Goncourt regarded this book as an Uchamaro masterpiece, writing that it was a documentary illustration of the lodgings of his days and night. And surely from Goncourt, the man seated in the window here, could be none other than Utamaro. About this picture, he wrote that it shows the, quote, painter who by his practices, habitude, could very likely be the true form of Utamaro, end of quote. Others since have fallen into the trap of thinking of this picture as a self-portrait, one Japanese writer even suggested that it was a double self-portrait where the child apprentice tending to the brazier uh, represented Uchamaro's own experience as, a, as an apprentice. And I have, but I have often thought that this was too simple a reading, and in my book on Uchamaro, I offered a counterpoint to reading images like these as documentary. 
Instead, I argued that Buttermaro worked in collaboration with his publishers to produce an artistic persona for the print-buying public, and thus to make Buttermaro into a brand name. This picture serves in that rhetorical construction of the idealized artist figure, elevating him above being a print illustrator. Now, I've returned to thinking about this book um, and its two variants as part of a larger project on Japanese illustrated books. So now let's turn to consider how a book like this would have been made, leaving aside for a moment the monochrome version to focus on the color example. As you can see, this title is comprised of two fascicles. These are gatherings of paper printed with text and images, pages folded and arranged, put between sturdier covers and bound along the right edge with string. It was made in the hanshibon, or half-sheet size. And by the time this title was issued, book sizes were more or less standardized to make efficient use of paper and woodblocks. It's in the Fukurotoji um, style, or bag or pouch binding format with side stitching. It was printed using xylography, as many of you did last night, um, and the clean draft copy was directly transferred to the block to make the key block. Each additional color was printed with a separate block using the same techniques shown for this single sheet print. So you can see here how many blocks were used to print this um, single sheet print by Uchimoto. Printing was done by hand and perfect registration was achieved through standardization of the blocks and through the use of notches or kento at the side and top corner. For bag-bound books, each folio sheet is printed only on one side. It's then folded and the cut edges are put into the interior and bound. Now we can reconstruct what a block would have printed by thinking about the individual sheet, like this, where the recto and verso are on the same block. Right? So that's what the block would have looked like, that design. As you know, the pages would have been folded, trimmed, paper covers made, and the entire sewn up in the publisher's shop. Um, this is what we see in the detail here. This chap is, is cutting the pages, excuse me, this one, and this one is folding them, of course. Um, this labor was thought to require so little expertise that women and children in the publisher's family could also do it. Um, publishers typically would make an initial offering of their products and then would have more printed in response to sale in an on-demand kind of fashion. Since blocks were stored, reused, and sold on, later printings might be issued from the same blocks, even years after the first printing. When blocks were sold on to another publisher, edicts in the period required that the colophons be updated with a new publisher and date. But if a publisher was reissuing a title from blocks he owned, he might not bother to have the blocks changed, even years after the first printing. And thus we encounter a lot of books with the same dates, but which we can tell by paper and color that they were printed later from the same blocks. How much would such a book cost at retail? It's hard to know for sure. Few prices are available, and most printed inventories don't give prices, and there are few account books. But in one 1824 title, a notice on the final page lists its price as five silver mulme, about 18.75 grams of silver, or about 5,500 yen in today's money in one conversion. And uh, for a point of reference, one silver mulme was a um, thousand copper coins, and a typical carpenter made 200 copper coins in one day. So you can imagine that this is a rather you know, pricey kind of item. Now, given that Uchimaro Iku uh, volume features even more beautiful color and finer printing than the example we see here, I would suggest that it would have been on sale for considerably more. But what were the production costs? 
Here too, the data is rather scanty. We don't have much data for the author's and illustrator's fees. We don't do know that some authors at the turn of the 19th century, like Ikuk, were able to support themselves fully by their brushes, and that some writers were renowned as big spenders. But sadly, we know very little more. Book scholar Suzuki Jun discovered records for the fees for a commission project, a kind of vanity press book. Um, and this, this, of course, did not require sort of talent fees for the writers and illustrators. So here's Suzuki's breakdown of the cost. The paper was 45% of the total cost, woodblocks and labor, 40%, printing 7%, collating and binding 8%. Okay, so that's the sort of backdrop. Now let's go back to our book again. The blue cover on the full-color imprint is original, and it retains part of an external title slip on the second volume. We can suss out the title on this a slip um, that says Nenju Gyoji Annual Events, um, and above here, Seiro, Azure Towers, a home picture book. Um, but the problem with these external titles is that they are simply slips of paper pasted to the covers. Some are original, but a lot are lost and replaced, as are the covers, so we don't rely upon these external slips for the titles. Um, I'm going to show you how to do that in just a second, but before we turn the page, let's look at the design on the exterior of this um, book. What we see here are embossed images of the crests of the brothels of the license district. The crests shown here, such as this one for the Ogiya, were the most exclusive places in that quarter, and these might also point to patronage for this particular project. Now to confirm the title, we have to go inside, and here we see it on this interior page. We have the main title and a subtitle here, where we have Nenji Gyoji, subtitle Seiro and Ehon, um, and this is what we call a sort of internal title sheet. Um, this, this, we elected to use it for this particular cataloging project, um, you could look at other places in the book. There's a, it is repeated later on in the book, so we feel very confident that this is the intended title. We also see that the book is complete in two parts. We also notice something really interesting here, that Iku and uh, uh, Utamaro are listed on either side of this fan shape, and what this fan shape is is, is a fan that's the kind that's used by a sumo re referee. Um, and so, by putting them across from each other, it's as though Utamaro and Iku become the sort of lead wrestlers from two particular camps, and they're fighting against each other. Um, and so, it's a literal opposition between word and image. Okay, now for the title. Let's go back here for a minute. You remember the title says Nenju Gyoji, and it refers to the annual events of the calendar. And temples, shrines, and other institutions had regular annual events, such as processions, festivals, markets, and the like, that were open to the public. The title tells us where this is taking place, in the Seiro, the Azure Towers, a Chinese-sounding euphemism for the licensed pleasure district located in the northern quadrant of the city of Edo. Um, and this is also the one problematic greenhouses, right? You can always find it on an Edo map because it's, it's up here, right? It's in the northern quadrant of the city and is shaped like a rectangle. It's very easy to find. Edo was by then uh, one of the excuse me, most, world's most populated cities with about 1.3 million residents recorded in the census of the mid-18th century. In 1750, by comparison, London's population was about 700,000, Paris was about 565,000, and Beijing was about 900,000. 
So Edo was a very unpopulated um, city indeed. It was also the seat of the Tokugawa military shogunate, with about 50% of the population coming from military ranks. And most of these people were men, of course. 40% of the other inhabitants were merchants and artisans, and 10% were priests, itinerant peddlers, ronin, uh, excuse me, um, um, masters of samurai, and others. Female and male prostitution was present in the city from its start. It was also a flourish, flourishing trade throughout the rest of the country. The sex trade was not illegal, nor was it demonized. Instead, it was, as much as possible, regulated, and major cities supported licensed pleasure districts. In Edo, the district was the Yoshiwara, and here we see both a map on the left and an image of the district. It was originally located in the center of the city, but in 1656, the shogunate insisted that they moved about two and a half miles out of the city to that distant location. And there it became a kind of self-sustaining village uh, with brothels, assignation houses, tea houses, and so on. Going there meant kind of an effort, taking an effort to get there. It took a, a while to get there. And going there, instead of going somewhere nearby, meant that there had to be a reason to go there. So the Yoshiwara was always promoting itself as this sort of exclusive district. Sheep prints and books, of course, marketed the quarter as a kind of paradise, staffed by beautiful women, and Uchamara was one of its most prolific illustrators. Now, throughout the 17, through the 1790s, the early 1790s, some 3,000 women were indentured to serve out 10-year contracts as professional sexual partners in the Yoshiwara. They were known at the time by the legal definition of yujo, literally women for play, a term often glossed today as courtesan. Uchamaro's best and longest collaborator, Taya Juzaburo, made his career as a publisher of guidebooks to the quarter, and here we see his shop, conveniently located just outside the Great Gate, so if you needed to get an updated guidebook to the quarter, you could just pop by and pick one up and go inside. Um, he published a lot of other books that showed um, the beauties of the quarter. Some of these, such as this one, were subvented by the brothels, and you could use um, his books to look them up and find out that the three ladies here, uh, Chozon, uh, Toyoharu, and uh, Senzon, are, are listed here. Senzon, Chozon, Toyoharu, they're all high-ranking courtesans. These are the highest-ranking ones, the Yobidashi, meaning by appointment only. Um, and were very um, expensive indeed. And it was through his collaboration with Sataya, and by extension the Yoshiwara, I argue that Uchamara became one of the brand names of his era. Now, in the first preface of our book, uh, it begins with a section by a well-known poet named Katamura Senshiro that praises both the brushes of Uchamara and Iku. He then outlines the contents and aligns the project with great works of the past. And this is pretty standard stuff. It concludes with the date, his signature, and a written device combining characters uh, within the motif of a persimmon. Now here, as elsewhere, we are meant to interpret this material as reproducing the hand of the writer. The calligraphy, signature, and personal mark are all treated as copied from his original text. Now, not only does this make this book fancier, for he's a well-known calligrapher, it also lends the book a mark of authenticity. The writer, Iku, offered the second introduction, and here again we are meant to note the distinctiveness of his hand. And this act of rendering the script as handwritten constitutes another form of material attention, this time to the action of the ink brushed across the paper. 
As such, the block is a kind of metaphorical mirror in wood, retaining that immediacy of hand moving across the page. In this section, Iku praises the quarter, he praises Uchimoto, and he encourages readers to appreciate this exclusive world. He signs by calling himself a dilettante of the Eastern capital. Um, and he has his signature, his seal, and his broom motif. And he contributes this all, he says, as a gehen, or playful editing. With the next page, we move into the color section. And here we see a picture of a poem card flanked by plums and camellias, flowers long associated with the season turning from winter to early spring. This kind of card form, uh, which you can uh, see in, in, in this section, uh, has long associations to classical traditions, both in design and color, and the fading quality of the uh, 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 pigments here is meant to suggest that this is uh, as though it's been painted by a brush. Here, the poet Sanchuan Sandara, Iku's poetry master, offers an elegant design of falling calligrapher, calligraphy, but this begins in an unusual place. Instead of beginning at the right, as you um, usually he starts, I'm sorry, I suddenly got nervous again. Okay, it begins in the center, it moves to the upper right, upper left, and then falls down to the upper, to the lower right. Um, so he starts in the middle, moves to the upper left, and then down to the lower right. And doing this, he's really messing with convention. Um, and while the text is much more elegant in Japanese than it is in English, but what it really says here is, quote, feeling sadness on the morning after, and now telling one little lie, the tolling of the six bells at dawn. End of quote. So the whole thing is about this kind of separation from someone you've just spent the night with and telling them you had a great time. Um, but uh, it's, and it's meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek. Okay, so with these two prefaces and the poem card, the fanciness factor has been sufficiently raised. It is with this poem card that the book shifts to color, and looking at the page layout, we can see that this arrangement is um, pragmatic, um, like the color insert in a modern book. We next shift to the uh, table of contents page, made to Im mimic the form of the great gate of the Yoshiwara. What we are about to encounter in text or image is put into the space between the pillars, promising of what is ahead once we pass through the opening. So we're told that we get to see things like the parade of the beautiful courtesans uh, as written and also in text, um, the uh, various other kinds of events that I will show you, all put in this kind of opposition of text and image uh, all the way through. So again, we have this kind of competition uh, of word and image. And that's what the great gate looks like, so you can see this very careful imitation of that. So each picture portrays a particular event or scene that has been made famous in the lore of the quarter, and we are called to imagine the textures, sense, sounds, and feel of what is placed before us. In this picture, two prominent courtesans, uh, this one from the Ogia, and you can tell this by um, her, the fan motif that's being carefully held here. Ogia means house of the fan. This woman is from the Surya um, uh, house, and you can tell that because of the crane motif, uh, meaning uh, house of the crane. Now, these two prominent courtesans are meeting along the main boulevard uh, on the annual parade. So they're completely surrounded by their retinue. And our period eye would recognize the place and value of things within the frame. We would assess, name, and price the value of these rare creatures. 
their extravagant hairstyles, combs and hairpins, layer upon layer of robes, and brocade obis. The figures in the scene are labeled so that we might learn their ranks and roles. The lead courtesans are called um, the oidon, and you can see that marked in purple here. We can also see the other ones, the banshin, who is a trainer, the kakei um, no mono, or a man who's sort of assisting with this parade, um, the geisha, these were women uh, entertainers, there were also some male entertainers in the 18th century known as geisha, but in this case they're female entertainers, and in the Yoshiwara they were strictly entertainers. The shinzo, these are the apprentice um, courtesans who have yet to be launched, and here the daiko, okay, this is a person who's playing special New Year's kind of uh, music. Um, okay. Now, what's really interesting about this book, as you can see, is that the color section is sort of set off from the rest of the text section. This makes a lot of sense in terms of just the production of the book itself, but what it means is that you have the images leading and the text following. And in the text here, Iku gives us a description of this scene, and he tells us, first of all, the history of the Yoshiwara, how it began, um, who um, was who, and now that this is the place that you need to go to see these beautiful women, and you need to see this magnificent annual parade. And this is basically how the whole book works, where you have image followed by text. This is how the second um, book works as well. And although the book presents the rhetoric that what we see is secret knowledge presented from the point of view of the insider, so much had been said about the quarter for so long that what is actually said in this um, would have been more or less common knowledge for people who had read anything about the quarter, much less those who were actual familiars. So there's really nothing, no new information here. It's just kind of fancied up. Well, let's look at a couple of the pictures. So here, for example, we see the display of um, gifts on the right, and these are gifts that are being given by the um, big spenders who have long-time relationships with these uh, women, and this is a moment where they can show off how well they're supporting the ladies. This is an image of the annual um, cherry blossom viewing that was held there. Uh, here on the right, we have uh, uh, the Midsummer Autumn Festival, and on the left, the um, of the later autumn uh, festival. This one was particularly loved because these are all women cross-dressed as men. Uh, on the right we have, excuse me, on the left, let's start with the left one because this is a little bit easier. Um, this one is a, a moon viewing party um, and this would be held on the 15th day of the, what, what it would be now October-ish, sort of the 8th, ninth month. And then here on the right, this is a, a patron who's been caught um, having relations with other ladies from other houses and been brought in and made to dress up like a courtesan and um, lead the rest of the party. So that's a kind of embarrassing one for him. <laughs> um, here we have a scene of a guest that stayed for many, many um, days. And if you read Iku's text, he talks about how wonderful it is to stay for a long time because you get to learn about how the ladies get their hair dressed and how they select their clothes and all sorts of other intimate details. And on the right, finally, they got to him to go home. They um, are bundling him up and sending him off. So far, this is all pretty um, straightforward. Um, for us, I think these are the two most problematic images. Um, here on the left, these are the apprentice courtesans who are being paraded um, in the quarter just before their um, virginity is about to be auctioned off. Um, and they were uh, paraded around for about a week before um, they uh, had that um, event settled with um, big spenders. 
On the right is a view of one of the middle-ranking houses, and um, the most exclusive courtesans did not have to sit in a lattice-fronted room like this, but the middle-ranking ones did, and they were sp supposed to, you know, be available for various um, potential customers. Um, so these two, I think, um, these might be problematic for us today, but they are part, part and parcel of the regular um, Yoshiwara trade. And when we look at this book, we need to also put it into another context. We need to keep in mind what people of the period knew, that it was calling back to the glory days of the quarter um, now long past. By the turn of the 19th century, commentators on the quarter remarked that it had lost its glamour and was in decline. What they did not say was about why that had happened. About 10 years earlier, um, about 10 years before this book was published, in the mid-1790s, the Shogunate enacted a series of reforms intended to bring back moral order. It cracked down on unlicensed prostitution, forcing the women to return to their homes in the countryside to go into other professions or be relocated in the Yoshiwara. And many of these women were under contract in the unlicensed districts and had no choice but to have their contracts sold to new owners in the licensed district. The population of the prostitutes in the Yoshiwara went from about 3,000 to 4,500, and they are all housed in an area that comprised about 20 acres. Um, and to um, get a sense of how big that is, the White House sits on about 18 acres. That gives you a sense of how small that area it is. About half of these women were at what was euphemistically called unregistered ranks, meaning that they were not high enough ranked to be included in the guidebooks. And by 1803, there were nearly 5,500 indentured prostitutes serving out 10-year contracts in the quarter. Now, this is an extremely rare set of prints by Utamaro where he labels these types, and he shows in rather explicit terms the differences. So here we have the Oyan, oh, sorry about that, that looks terrible. This Oyan, who is the highest-ranking type, so very exclusive, probably, uh, well, a lot of money. This is the Geisha, or Geisha, um, a Geki, who would be uh, an entertainer. This is a woman called the Kiri no Musume, and this type um, is one of the lowest ranks to be included in the guidebook, and this type, um, her time was available to you um, on the amount of time it took for two incense sticks to burn. This one is called the Kashi, and she um, served along the moat side of Kashi means riverbank, so you can go, let your mind go there. This one is called the tepo, and she, this is a word that was being used for uh, muskets, and it referred to the fact that muskets had a tendency to backfire, and these were known to be carriers of syphilis. So this is one of the few works that actually show us the sort of darker side of the Yoshiwara. So when we turn back to this book, we can think about it as marketing a kind of idealized version of the quarter, um, and both Iku and Uchimaru has hired hands in the project to attempt to restore that former aura of exclusivity, exclusivity. By emphasizing these annual events as moments of festivity and pleasure, by reading us in on what appears to be intimate moments and telling details, the book is designed to recast that quarter once more in glamour. And this is a coordinated and curated representation of the quarter, a performance in print arranged by the publisher and his likely patrons, the brothel owners. But when we get to the back matter, we realize that Iku played an even greater role. In the next to last opening, the book ends with a large inset box. On the right is Iku's name first and foremost, and quite large, and you can see he's marked out as editor. This puts him effectively into the driver's seat for the project. He's not a writer, he's an editor. 
Um, this is followed by the title and a notice that the additional volumes will be coming for soon. And the long passage on the left is an afterword where Iku summarizes what he told you about in this book. So that it's almost like an advertisement placed at the end of this book. He also gives his address as the Hamanoya Tea House on the Central Avenue of the Quarter. His signature designates him as having made the selection of topics. And so we can see that this is really much more an advertisement, but the arrangement of elements and what is not said, no mention of artist or publisher, is telling. Iku's name is framing the entire project, and he's credited here with a concept and its rendition. Yes. Typically, the colophon page included the names of all the contributors, but we know that Iku's name is not repeated. The previous was enough for his star turn. Um, prominently on the right is the, is the name of uh, the Edo uh, artist, as it's written here, Kitagawa, from the Kitagawa studio, Murasaki um, ya um, Uchamaro Hitsu, meaning it comes from the brush of Uchamaro from the Murasaki house. Um, the next line is what is critical, though. This next line reads, Kogo Monjin, which means more or less collating, selecting, revising. And Monjin means students. So what we have here are the students of Uchamaro who are taking on this important task, task of collating and revising. And the students here are Kikumaro, Kiremaro, and Takemaro. What this means is that they have selected, edited, and revised from Uchamaro's body of work for this, this project. And this means, in effect, that they have done the work. Following the double lines, we have the name of the uh, carvers and the printer. This is quite rare. This means they're very celebrated. And finally, the name of the publisher and his um, location. Okay, so the textual emphasis on Iku as writer, editor, and so on gives greater attention to his role, um, and we get the sense now that it was put together by the efforts of Iku. So how much did Uchamaro contribute? The presentation of his students in this, in this way suggested that they ghosted the book, working from the teacher's designs, perhaps even from his sketches or his other works, and they revised them for this project. The project is then being promoted as being an exceptional work carved into cherry block woods by this important um, artist and uh, printer, excuse me, carver and printer. I'm trying to summarize because now I know I'm over time. The picture of the painter at work, I would say, is not a self-portrait. Rather, it is an homage um, by um, the students. They're saying, this is our teacher, this is our person who's taught us so well, um, and then we can start to understand that this is not a documentary of Uchamaro's days and nights, as Goncourt suggested. Rather, it is an explication of the quarter written by one of the most famous writers of the day, on commission by a publisher, with designs submitted by students of Uchamaro and likely funded by the brothel owners. So what about the monochrome version? Recognizing that Kazusaya was the block holder, we might indeed wonder whether this version was printed at the same time or whether it was issued later. The blockware in the Kirk Pulver copy suggests that these key blocks were fairly well used by the time this imprint was issued. But there's another fascinating thing about this title. It is not all printed. Parts of it are manuscript, rather impressively consistent with 1804 printing. This was done by the early 20th century owner, Kurokawa Mamichi, whose seal is present here. Uh, he was an antiquarian and editor of several titles about the Edo period. And what we see here, this is his manuscript. He's perfectly copied, right? 
you see it? Yes, okay. Thank you, Michael, for nodding. He tells us on the inscription on the inside of the back cover that he has reassembled this book as would anyone that loves book, books, but he has also carefully transcribed the text as much as possible to match the original. Here, the printed hand is returned to the inked hand, and this act of reassembly and reconstruction in the 20th century points to another part of the story of this copy, that of its mobility through time and to the later reappraisal and appreciation of the artist, writer, and the world of ukiyo-e as a whole. There is more that can be said about this book and its context, but what I hope I have done today is show how careful looking at the material object itself and putting it into period context fundamentally changes our understanding of a book like this. It also changes our understanding of what it meant to be an author at this time. In this case, Iku was more than a brush for hire. He was in fact the lead producer for this project, working in collaboration with the publisher. Uchimaru was not the contributing designer, Rather, his students provided renderings of their master's images. The likely patrons were the brothel owners, and the book was intended to reclaim glamour for the quarter. Print is here being put into service to market that fantasy of desire. Thank you. And it's, it's a tough assignment, 30 minutes. Um, I think I went 40. <laughs> I think nobody's hot and bothered by that. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, good. Great pictures. Aren't they great pictures? Yeah. Question. Yeah. Jill, you may have mentioned this, and I missed it, I apologize, but what is, if we know, the print run <laughs> on both the color version as well as the monochrome version? And were they actually separate print runs? We don't know anything about the print run. That's the problem. I mean, we don't know how many they issued initially. Um, we don't know if they're the same time. They they have the same date. Okay, so that makes us think they were the same time. Um, what I started to do now, I started with this project looking at the two copies in the Pulver collection at the first Hackler. And um, what I didn't tell you is that by comparing the monochrome printing to the color printing, I can tell that the monochrome printed version is a later recut of the blocks. But I have found another monochrome version that's the same blocks. I've also found a copy from the Meiji period that are new blocks. So this thing went through many, many iterations, and I think that's going to be the sort of next level of project here, is to get as many copies as I can to see how many differences there are and to see if I can get to a better understanding of these things. And, um, you know, the, the other challenge with this is that, of course, if you own the blocks, you can reprint it. So they could have reprinted any number of copies at any time. And because the blocks were not sold on, they didn't change the date. So um, that's, that's an issue. And sometimes we can tell the difference by color but, uh, and paper, but sometimes we can't tell. Soren, do you agree with me? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Uh, the blocks still exist? No. Some blocks do exist, but not these blocks. Um, there's a really interesting guy called Kaneko Takaaki who's doing a project at Ritsumeikan University. Um, he is going around uh, all of Japan and finding all the woodblocks that remain, and he's doing standardized. 
he's doing a standard photographic practice with all of them, you know, straight down to side, ang- side angles. And he, um, last time I spoke to him, he'd taken pictures of 10,000 blocks, and he'd uploaded 5,000 images to his database. And whenever he can find the block that goes with a particular book, he'll put the link to the book so that you can you can do that kind of thing. And um, he's found out a lot of information um, based on that. He wrote a book about um, the history of blocks, which you guys will be shocked to hear. It was a bestseller and sold out. <laughs> and he had to go to a second printing like within a year. And I just, I think, I just love that sort of level of nerdiness, right? I mean, that, that I don't know how big that edition was either, but it was big enough that it sold out and then he had to do it again. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting work that comes out of his project. Yeah. Is he recording only secular works with uh, he's, he's even done um, uh, religious ones. So he's gone to various temples around Japan that, yeah, that he's found. So they're... Yeah, that can account for the rather large number. That He found, though, a lot of um, secular blocks in, in the Kyoto, Osaka region. The ones from Edo, Tokyo... You know, disappeared, right? Um, due to the various fires. I mean, if the various fires in the Edo period weren't enough, the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake that wiped out two thirds of the city would have done it, and the 1945 um, firebombing would have done the other part of that. And so there aren't many blocks in uh, Tokyo anymore, but there are lots in the Kyoto, Osaka, Nara region. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is the other great place that has a lot of blocks, Unsodo. A few years ago, um, uh, my colleague Suzuki Jun and I walked into Unsodo without an appointment, and we sweet-talked them into letting us see their storehouse. Um, and that, talk about a nerd's paradise. That was, that was the best thing ever. Um, he even has some blocks from the Hokusai mangas, and they have reprinted them since then. But... Unsodo is a, a major um, publishing house in Kyoto. They're particularly famous for things from the late 19th century forward, and they have the blocks for all those projects, and so that's a really um, great resource. And Kaneko-san has um, digitized all those, too. Yeah. It strikes me, and, and out of um, relatively, well, very little knowledge, how tame this is. Um, how romanticized this is. Yeah. Because when you look at other floating world prints, <coughs> there's a degree of explicitness and, and the proliferation of, of what we might consider in the West pornographic images yeah. that are associated with these districts and associated with courtesans more generally um, is vast, right? And, and this kind of finds a way to prescind from all of that and, and doesn't, doesn't make the obvious move, but makes a different kind of move. And I wonder if you could talk about that strategy a little bit. Right. This is a really interesting um, thing that you're pointing to because Uchamoto too did a lot of books. I think thirty or forty um, uh, books of erotica, and you know those that was kind of standard practice for a lot of the um, major artists of the day. Uh, now, technically, those books were forbidden by edict. And uh, was you know there are certain topics that you were not supposed to take up, contemporary history, <coughs> rumors about the present, politics, 
erotica. Those are the big hot topics. When people got into trouble, it was for things that had to do with politics or history. Um, I don't know of anyone who got in trouble with erotica. At least I can't think of one now. And what they did was they, when they, and the other rule was that you had to have the name of the producer, whether that was the the publisher, um, the writer, and the illustrator. Those names had to be included in a book. So if you published erotica, you just didn't include those names. So you were technically, you know, you were you were violating one edict, but you were, you know, I don't know. They were trying to get around uh, those laws, and that's what they did. And so, but it, what is interesting about this, and this is one of the reasons why I think it might relate to a sort of marketing campaign, is that they would have wanted to present the sort of beautiful quality of it, wanted to draw you in by getting you to come for the festivals. Um, once you got there, you know, maybe they'd show you some of that other stuff. Or maybe you could buy it at Sutaya's shop, sort of under the counter, you know. Um, what's remarkable about those erotic books, erotica, is that they are so beautifully printed. And it's like beautiful uh, metal, metallic pigments, um, beautiful colors, uh, embossing, all these things, these sort of special effects. And that means they were really expensive to produce. And I, we don't have any evidence yet about how they were produced, but I've long thought that if you were a publisher, you wouldn't do that without having a sort of group of clients that you knew would want them, right? So not necessarily a subscription list, but a group of people that you knew you could sell them to. The other thing that's interesting about the erotica is um, they often circulated by the lending libraries, and there are stamps of the lending libraries in them. So while it was technically forbidden to produce them, it wasn't forbidden to circulate them. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, it's really interesting. And the cool thing about the lending libraries is they often bought the first printings of things because they wanted to get it out to their best customers right away. And so some of the nicest printed things come from the lending libraries, and they always put this big black stamp on them and say, you know, don't damage it, don't deface it, or you'll have to pay a fine. You know, that's a big surprise. Yeah. They're thirsty. They're thirsty. Okay, great. Thank you so much.